Hey everybody, today's guest is none other than Mr. Cyrus Baluki, drummer extraordinaire for the Coral Springs, Florida band Newfound Glory. Uh, I've, I've known these, uh, these kids forever and uh, no matter how old they get, uh, I always refer to them uh, as kids. Um, we uh, talk uh, and discuss today uh, the Newfound Glory classic Hit or Miss uh, in detail and uh, it was a lot of fun talking about this song. Uh, there's a lot of misconceptions about drummers uh, not being songwriters, and uh, this is just not true. Cyrus, in fact, came up with the main riff of Hit or Miss uh, on the guitar. Uh, they recorded Hit or Miss three times, uh, the original recording of the song, uh, then again with Jerry Finn, and a third time with Neil Avron. Um, Cyrus uh, touches on uh, how his father uh, was a famous heart surgeon, and he had to break it to his parents that he was going to do the band and uh, not go into medicine, which was uh, which was a very tough decision for him. Um, and I got to give a shout out to Newfound Glory. Uh, they were the only band uh, that, that Less Than Jake took out uh, as a baby band that later took us out uh, on their Honda Civic Tour once they blew up, and uh, we uh, were forever indebted to them for that. We'll, we'll never forget uh, their kindness and generosity. And uh, if you haven't heard the new Newfound Glory album that came out this past June, uh, it's a ripper. It's called Forever and Ever times infinity uh go check it out for all this and much more stay tuned hey hey have you heard krista makes a podcast hey hey have you heard krista makes a podcast hey hey have you heard krista makes a podcast hey hey have you heard krista makes a podcast I'm going to pretend that you're still in Florida because to me, you will always be a Florida, you know, less than Jake and, and you guys personally, you're Florida guys. Well, exactly. It's kind of like you guys, when you, you all took off for California for all, I'm like, they'll be back. They'll be back. And you were right. Yeah. 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 It's like, I can never, I'll, I'll never be able to leave Florida. I could, I could change physical addresses, but I'm all, I'll always live there. You know, yeah. it's in our, it's in our blood. So, um, gosh, I've known you for over 20 years now. Yep. Um, the newfound glory guys, uh, kids, I call them. They'll always be kids to me, uh, even though as we've gotten older, uh, our ages have gotten closer. <laughs> you're almost as old as I am now. No, that's right. You, you're not. You're not aging anymore. But I'm getting up there. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I still see you guys as kids, and my gosh, it was so funny. Uh, Cyrus, uh, of course, my listeners know that I, I have the guest. Uh, uh, my guests pick a song that like to feature from their career, and Cyrus pick uh, picked hit or miss. And uh, as I was researching the song, of course, I've heard it a million times, but I, I you know, did a little homework and I, I went back and watched the video and uh, you guys were babies. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. <laughs> so um, take us back. Uh, you know, you you had picked this song. Cyrus, of course, is, is the drummer from Newfound Glory. And a lot of times uh, uh, drummers don't get credit for uh, writing lyrics or uh, melodies uh, guitar parts, uh, you know, in the case of less than Jake, uh, Vinny wrote our, our lyrics all those years. So, um, you know, there's a lot of misconceptions about drummers and you picked this song because, uh, and I didn't know this, uh, evidently you, you came up with the, the main guitar riff. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, that's true. So I, yes, you're right. I guess drummers, uh, a lot of times don't get credit. And then there are drummers like your, uh, like Vinny, like you mentioned and, uh, Neil Pert, Neil Pert was oh, a yeah. lyricist of rush, you know, um, in my band, I'm not a lyric guy. I, uh, that's just not my forte, but music wise, I think everybody in the band would agree. I do seem to have the most musical knowledge in the band. 
um, not really classically trained, but I started by playing piano and then went to guitar and then went to drums. Drums was not my first instrument. So the guitar part of that is important because when I was about 12 or 13 is when I picked up a guitar and really got into it. And I learned by playing along to my favorite songs. And like any teenager learning an instrument, listening especially to things like rock music and, and punk rock and stuff like that, you want to write songs or play or just jam or whatever. And around that time was when Green Day Dookie was out. Um, and so, you know, for me hearing that album, I started mimicking everything. I mean, I even thought at that time I had a decent voice, which is not true, but, you know, <laughs> so I, I'm sitting there just playing around, singing those songs, learning those songs, doing whatever in my bedroom. And I, I don't remember, I don't think it was new. So it was one of those stories of not a garage sale, but I got a four track recorder um, somehow secondhand. And I was mesmerized by the idea of recording and not just, you know, having a Walkman or whatever and hitting record. And it sounds like you in a room, the idea that you could record and overdub yourself. Yeah, and you can I multi-track. Started, exactly. And I started learning about that process and learning a little bit about, about what was going on. Four tracks in those days with an actual, just regular cassette tape. Very interesting because two of the tracks were on one side, side A, and then side B was actually the other two tracks, but they would be recorded backwards in a sense and uh, whatever that's a whole nother story that you know could involve psychedelic stuff or whatever but so the way that this works with hit or miss was i before i was even a newfound glory or i think it was right around the time that i got a newfound glory of course i'm just messing around guitar i loved playing my metallica and pantera and i was an alternative kid rage against machine pearl jam those are my jams on guitar drums wise i wasn't really as good yet so i couldn't do a lot of that stuff so playing all these songs, um, you know, bound to come up with random stuff. And I remember having a song that I wrote and I worked days on it, just figuring things out, doing whatever I could. And it was this riff. And the riff is that intro riff to, my, uh, to Hit or Miss. So I thought I wrote a song around it. Looking back, it, I didn't really write a song. I literally wrote that riff and I just kept repeating it over and over. And I don't think I ever recorded lyrics to it or any of that stuff, but I do somewhere have a recording and I should have given it to you. I have a recording on cassette tape of that riff. And this is pre newfound glory or right around the same time right that around. I got a newfound glory. So this is 1997 or something like that. Mm -hmm. Wow. And so, uh, I, I didn't like come into the newfound glory situation. Uh, here's a little known fact or whatever. I'm not the original drummer, of newfound glory. They had a drummer for about three and a half months before me. So yes, for all practical reasons, I am the original drummer, but no, they actually had a EP already out and they played shows without me. Right. When I got into the band, I was just the guy who got in the band and started playing shows. I didn't come in and be like, Hey guys, I got this song. Let's uh, try my song. You know, that's not what you do when you get into a situation like that. So it was months later where I think I might've picked up a guitar or something and been like, Hey, here's something that I did. And it, Chad heard it and Chad goes, wait, what was that? And I'm like, well, it's this riff I was working on. And I'm like, hey, I have a whole song. And I think I gave him that tape or a copy of the tape. And he just came back to me and said, you know, can I borrow this tape and um, whatever, just mess around with it? Can I steal I your like, song? Yeah. And I was <laughs> like, sure, man, whatever you want to do. Within a week or less, uh, we would practice once a week, once every other week. We were pretty big about that. And he was like, you know, I, I messed around with that song and I added some other parts to it. And, uh, I think it's pretty cool. And so he took this riff from hit or miss, which is the intro riff. 
and, uh, you know, wrote a verse, which was a Paul muted thing and wrote this, uh, in my opinion, the best part of the song, which is that halftime kind of after or bridge part, if you want to call it, um, that was heavy. And that's what I loved about Newfound Glory, even getting into the band, was the fact that we went from playing faster stuff to this halftime feel, usually within the same song. And it was like, I mean, light years ahead of what I did. And I would have never thought of that. But, yeah, you know, uh, look back and in, in, in retrospect, that was a, a huge, huge defining point in our career. And uh, we play that song every single show. If we don't play that song, there was something wrong with the show that night. You get, you or get we got crucified. cut short or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, and, and you know what? Um, the funny thing about, if I remember correctly, when I was writing that riff, um, I'm a drummer. So some of the jokes about drummers kind of apply here. I'm very analytical, almost too much. And it's weird because in music, music is creative, right? You're supposed to do whatever you want. However, I love to approach it analytically. I love to kind of look at, well, almost the science behind it. And with hit or miss, I swear, I was trying to purposely write a riff with what uh, people, and I'm probably wrong about this, but I think it's called a pedal point. And what that means is, at least in my opinion, you're basically holding, uh, like you start with a chord, a power chord on guitar in this case, and you take elements of this chord and they stay the same while other parts of it move. So... I mean, it's a podcast. It's kind of hard to explain this, but no. But I know where it's at. It's the third chord of the riff. Yeah, well, to play to play hit or miss the correct way, because so many people throughout the years just play power chords. They play uh-huh. an E power chord, uh, you know, to the B, B power chord, C sharp, A. Yeah. It's yeah. not what it is. It's you play the E power chord up on the seventh fret of the A string, the high E, if you want to call it, and then you leave your ring and uh, pinky fingers, like the top two notes of that power chord, you leave them where they are and you only move the bottom. You only move the index finger. And that goes from the seventh fret to the B, the seventh fret of the E string to the C sharp and all that. That's how you play it correctly. And it formed, in my opinion, these really cool chords. And uh, that was the that was why I wrote the riff that way. And we have to teach that to people all the time when they go to play it. And I think Chad loved it too, because that's not the style of guitar he grew up playing hardcore songs. Like hardcore bands don't do that stuff. They just chug a chug and like kill each other, you know? So right. I think he enjoyed kind of learning and uh, approaching guitar playing differently well, for that riff. Do you know what's interesting? Um, I want to say it was Warp Tour 2013. I, I wasn't on the tour that you guys were. Uh, I was in Orlando and I was inside of the stage and Chad's like, hey, I want you to come up. I, I want to say Chad was going to like stage dive or no, Chad was going to maybe sing with Jordan or something. But he, do you remember doing you guys doing that? You'd hand off the guitar, Chad would. Yeah. I remember you you performed with us. Well, yeah, but he's like, do you know the riff? I'm like, well, yeah, it's an E, right? He's like, yeah, but do you know the, like, and he showed me the move because I never knew the move. Yeah. (laughs) The the move. (laughs) Yeah. So, so I know that's funny. And I'm glad you mentioned that because, and the stuff you were talking about beforehand, because when you initially told me, you know, you wrote the riff of the song, which I didn't know. But I, I did know that you knew your way around guitar. Um, you do a lot of the acoustic performances with the bands. Rarely does a drummer hop up on a stool and play acoustic with a band. I can count on one hand the times I've seen it. Um, so what was was interesting is, and I don't think a lot of people really know this, um, is understanding from the piano and especially a guitar because you guys are a, a, a guitar band, but you know, understanding the musicality of all the instruments you played knowing where guitar accents and things are 
is so integral to translate to a drummer. If you don't play guitar, it's hard to explain to somebody. And I've worked with drummers where they don't play other instruments. So you're trying to show them, well, well the guitar riff ends here on, on this verse, but on the second verse, it goes longer, but they're still playing it like the first verse. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, totally. Totally. Well, you know, I think it's, it's an advantage. And then I guess not really a disadvantage. It's totally an advantage when, let's say, we're writing music as a band. Um, sometimes it's frustrating for me is probably what I should say uh, because I understand the guitar. And so um, it's an advantage because the things you're talking about, I can totally see what's going on with these riffs. Um, in some ways, I definitely, as we're writing, and if I'm getting a little frustrated at like trying to come up with drum drum parts, in my head I'm thinking, I just wish I could go grab that guitar because I already know how to play this riff and I've literally never played it on guitar, but I can see it and it's that easy to kind of digest. Sometimes it's uh, a little bit frustrating because since I understand it so fast, I can get frustrated watching the actual uh, string guys in our band, the guitar, bass, but you know what? I can get frustrated watching them try to comprehend this when I'm like, what do you, t it's the easiest thing in the world. How do you not right. understand how it repeats here or d does that or whatever? Yeah, but it's, uh, you know, it's a great thing for me because I think being versed in all those areas does allow you to develop your own instrument or at least have an ear that's a little different so that you can play off of those other things and, and, and make stuff work better. Sure. So um, did you, uh, have you ever played guitar on a Newfound Glory record? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So little known fact, because there's no reason to give credit for things like that. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I've played guitar, I played bass, I played all of that. Um, That's I great. think the first, the first time I did it was as a joke. And um, so the joke was, uh, we did Sticks and Stones, our second, you know, big full length for, for uh, drive through MCA. We were with Neil Avron, great producer in a really nice studio. And uh, Ian, Ian Grushka, our bass player came up to me and he was like, dude, I want to play drums on this record. And I'm like, no way, man. And he's like, no, no, I want to play drums. And I, what I'm thinking is he wants to play like a, a beat. And I'm like, how is that going to, there's no way. It doesn't sound right. Yeah. You know, it's not like he's, drummer. But he's actually not that bad of a drummer, but he's just not me. Right. And right, right. You know, none of us are each other. So he's like, no, no, I figured it out. So the last song on Sticks and Stones is called Story So Far. And uh, the story so far starts with a snare hit on like two and four or quarters, however you're counting. It's just a snare hit. There's really nothing else to it. And he goes, here, let me do the snare hits. And I'm like, okay. And I just look at Neil, like, are you kidding? Just whatever. Let it let, just entertain him and then we'll replace him later. So Ian goes and does these snare hits and he's like, well, fair trade-off. Thanks for letting me do that. You can play my first bass, like the first three <laughs> bass notes. So on Sticks and Stones, because it was never, it's not like this was before Pro Tools or it was just starting. So sure. you don't just get to chop things up all you want. The first, I think, two hits of uh, snare on the story so far is Ian playing drums. And the first do-do-do-do, so those first uh, four notes, is me playing bass. I can't remember the time we're playing. That's pretty cool. So Hit or Miss was recorded twice. It was recorded on Nothing Gold Can Stay, correct? Yeah, I'm actually going to I'm going to correct you. It was recorded 3 different times, but start with your twice and then I'll give you the third one well, that nobody no, really thinks about. Yeah, there was a third one. Yes. Was it now was that a, a, a on a soundtrack or something or No, that was uh so we'll we'll fast forward here. We recorded that song with Jerry Finn 
Um, it's actually in the middle of probably the two that you're thinking of. It was recorded, Hit or Miss was recorded for Nothing Gold Can Stay. That's right. when we were still down here in South Florida. And then, um, and then, and then Neil did it. Neil did it. Yes. Neil did it for, and uh, again, I guess in South Florida, so I shouldn't have said that, um, okay. for our first, uh, our self-titled CD, the first major label CD. Right. In between those two, we recorded it with Jerry Finn. And, um, if you get our, uh, the reissue of our self-titled CD that was the 10th anniversary. It's like a double disc or whatever. So it's got okay. a lot of extra things. We have that Jerry Finn, um, uh, you know, recording on there. Rest in peace, by the way. And for us, it was amazing to work with him. But the, the reason why this happened was, if you don't know a lot about Newfound Glory or at least our history, and Chris, I know you do, so I'm sorry. You're going to hear the same story again. Yeah. We, we're a band from South Florida. We uh, weren't really on a label. We, just, we were on local labels down here, played tons of shows, got ourselves popular. In a nutshell, drive through records, they caught wind of us and uh, they offered to sign us. And we signed to them, not really knowing who they were, but just knowing that they, first off, they were friends with you guys. That was actually a huge reason why we signed to them because you guys had done their music video show, I think, already a couple times. Sure. And then, um, you know, they also had, uh, it was River Phoenix at the time, but Phoenix TX, who had just gotten signed to MCA and was opening up for Blink-182. And, you know, being a pop punk band, that's like the pinnacle up there. Oh, yeah. So we signed a drive through and, um, you know, we, we release, re-release, Nothing Gold Can Stay on drive through which was already out at the time. We do this uh, from the Screen Your Stereo, our first cover album. Everything started clicking right around then. I believe we went on tour with you guys uh, right around that time, our first time going on tour. Uh, long story short, MCA, um, they basically had, that, which is the major label, they had a deal with drive Through that was before, pre-our deal. And their deal, I guess, allowed them, it's called an upstreaming deal. So it allowed MCA to look at drive throughs roster at any time. And anybody that they thought was doing well or that, I guess, could benefit from being on MCA... They could grab them from drive through for a already determined deal or whatever they had kind of internal. And they did that with us. Now, they grabbed us after we released From the Screen Your Stereo, our cover record. And obviously, the next, lo- next logical move is to record a full length. However, we had so much steam going on that they wanted to take hit or miss this song and they wanted to get it on the radio. But they didn't feel like the Nothing Gold Can Stay recording was radio worthy. And they were right. Um, so they're like, you know what? Bands do this, at least at the time they do. Let's go record Hit or Miss. It's, it will put it out as a single. And once it gets out there, we'll just throw you guys in the studio and we'll make a record. And at first we're like, no way. You make a record by doing 12 songs in the studio at the same time and you release them all at once. And they're like, no, do this because we can get it on the radio. We can get it on MTV. Maybe we can get it to movies, whatever. And you'll be doing the, the, the rest of the record. And if the song blows up, it almost doesn't matter. You're good. So, so, let, so let me let me interject real quick. Ahead. So now, you know, at this point, though, you, you find out you're going to work with Jerry Finn. And I mean, Jerry Finn mixed Dookie. That was his big break. He went on to record, you know, uh, so many amazing bands, Blink-182. And now I've never heard that version. This is news to me. And when we, we get done with this, I'm definitely going to listen to it. I'm curious. But how, how was how'd that sound? How was that version compared to what ended up with Neil? Because the Neil version is the definitive version, which sounds, which sounds amazing. Of course. Yeah. So we go in with Jerry and of course we're, you know, 19 years old and yeah, I mean, so ecstatic. Here's the guy who did, who mixed Dookie. Here's the guy who, you know, we're Suicide Machines fans. He did the Suicide Machines record. We even loved Smoking Popes and he actually had new Smoking Popes music we hadn't heard of that he was playing for us. I mean, just 
I guess not even enamored. Like you're, you're, you're just in awe. <laughs> yeah. You're starstruck. Honestly, I could barely talk to the guy. Um, we get in the studio with him and everything is different because it's uh, Larrabee East in, in LA. It's a beautiful studio, multi-million dollar, you know, console equipment. I was scared poopless. I don't know what kind of po- podcast this is, but he was scared was, shitless. Yes. Thank you. And it was, it was that scary, right? We'd never done it before. Super excited, but so scared. So we get in there. Uh, we actually had Mike Fasano working with us, which you guys know him. Oh, right? Of course. Yeah. You guys back. Him. Amazing, amazing person. First time meeting him, hearing his stories about the blink records and stuff. He's a studio drum tech for those of you who don't know. So he's out there because I didn't live in California. He's got his drums out there. He's got everything. And we set it all up. And I'm thinking I'm going to be good. And then Jerry Finn puts on um, a click track, which I had no experience with. We didn't use a click track at all on Nothing Gold Can Stay or uh, from the studio stereo. So he turns it on and I'm like, all right, I can figure this out. But this is very weird. I'm hearing this little like beep or kind of like knocking in (laughs) in my headphones. (laughs) Exactly. We start recording and I think it was, I don't even know if we got through one take. And he's like, you know what? I want to hear you without the click. Now, again, 19 year old, I'm like, sure, man, whatever. Hopefully we do a couple of takes. We're done. Looking back, I must have sucked that bad with the click that he was just trying to make sure I still had confidence. So he's like, let's try it without. So he turns off the click and I record again. And I think I'm sure I had Chad. I probably actually had everybody playing because a lot of times, you know, the band will play with you when you record, even if they don't keep their tracks. Sure. Um, yeah. So I recorded again and I remember him looking at me or talking to me afterwards, again, probably just producer thing to keep you happy. He was like, man, while you were recording, I turned the click on just so I could hear it. And you were spot on. Mm-hmm. Not true at all. Listen to the, if you listen closely to this version that, that's out, you'll hear it speeds up slightly. Not bad, but it speeds up. If you want me to summarize this version in like one or two words, um, it, it's, it's sterile. I don't mean, and I'm, we will never fault Jerry Finn because it wasn't, we literally had met this guy less than 24 hours before. Now you guys and were full, you guys were full of nerves. There was no vibe. You were scared shitless. Totally. And even yeah. with him, I think he was like, you know, cause I'm, I'm sure like most producers, which uh, a couple months later, Neil came and visited us. We went out to like an olive garden, you know, we did the normal things we do as 19 year olds sure. to like break the ice and, and establish a relationship. It's a huge thing to be with a producer uh, Jerry Finn had two days. That's it. Two days, get this song done and you can go mix it. So it's a very sterile version of the song. And, um, we ended up not ever releasing it to radio, not even releasing it until years, years later. And as, as like a, you know, B side slash demo. Right. So, yeah, I mean, it was amazing to work with him, but obviously, you know, coming out of that, it's like, okay, well, I don't think we'll work with him again. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, that's, that's a, a great story. I, I had no yeah. idea it was, it was recorded. I, some, some, for some reason, I kind of remembered it was recorded three times, but that's, uh, that's awesome. You mentioned that. So going back to the song, um, you know, you, you wrote the riff, Chad takes the cassette 
he does what he does with it and he comes back when he came back with it now. Um, cause I, when I went and researched the song, I noticed that it was credited to all five of you who were in the band at the time. Yeah. Um, and a lot of times online that'll happen, but like, um, did Chad, had, did Chad have anything to do with like, were the lyrics all there or did he have a melody that he came back with? You know, at that time it was uh, pretty collaborative with everybody. Although again, I'm not a lyric guy, so not really so much lyrics with me, but you know, you mentioned how, and if you look now, it's still all of our music always says, uh, written by newfound glory, right. um, music by newfound glory, things like that. That's just something that we done from the very beginning. We, we never really did one of these where, well, here's my song and here's yours. And we got to take credit where credit's due and all that. And I'm glad we didn't because in our opinion, at least with our band that could have caused a riff down the road. Yeah, one Rift, guy's living one, one guy's living in a mansion in Malibu and everyone else is living in a trailer park. I mean, exactly. yeah. Exactly. And then you're fighting for your song and you're like, well, I'm not going to play your song unless my song's on the record. And, you know, I, I, whatever. That's a whole other podcast you could probably get into there. But, sure. <laughs> so, you know, the other at, at that at that time, um, Jordan was actually pretty involved with melodies and things like that. So I, I can't remember exactly if I, I, I know for sure Chad wasn't like, here's a song, you know, here's everything. Now, fast forward to to present time, Chad does come up with the majority of almost everything. A lot of it is he'll have uh, this like kind of full idea of a song and then he'll kind of run it by most of us or we do a lot of demos. So I'm usually the first person in the process because I'm the one recording the demos and he'll be like, hey, should we do this twice or whatever? You know, is this line good? What do you think about this melody? Stuff like that. Um, but yeah, at the time it was a lot more kind of collaborative and we would just jam a lot. That's what we did. So I think it was more music. And a lot of times we would write the music first and then the lyrics would come second. So that's probably what happened with that. We just had a song and then we right. figured it out, so, uh, you know, from there. So the, uh, and, and I, I wish I would have now, I didn't listen to the original version on nothing gold, but that version, how much did it change, uh, to the Jerry Finn to the, w did Neil change anything from either of the other two or was it kind of same structure, same lyrics? It was just re-recorded every time. Do you remember? Yeah, the structure I don't think changed, and I think a lot of that is the reason. It's because of uh, you know the explicit instructions to both Jerry Finn and I'm sure Neil is don't mess this up. This is the song for the band. That's the song that the MCA guys because before they upstreamed us from Drive Through, they saw us play at like a, I think it was a place called Hanover House in Connecticut. I don't know if you guys ever played there. You know, it's like crappy club but people were singing this song so loud most yeah, of our songs they were why, doing. why mess with something that's perfect why f exactly, it up exactly exactly so uh, the instructions were don't mess this up and with jerry finn he's just gonna you know redo it and make us sound good like clear and again it was almost too sterile with neil what neil really and uh, really added and we still kind of joke about it it's all the layers because that was the first time we'd really been produced so yes we knew what harmonies were going in but we didn't really do many of them right Neil made sure there were harmonies he made sure that a second verse had something different and usually it was like a second guitar layered on top yeah. all the choruses have these guitar parts and i i really wish i had i i have the multi-tracks or could get the multi-tracks from those records i wasn't like big on that and nowadays i have multi-tracks from all of our sessions to like have all these parts there are guitar parts on there that if you listen to them and people tell you this if you know anything about the studio these parts in isolation are weird uh sometimes they just are silly like don't even make sense but when you put it in it's like you know if you take it out it's something sounds weird but when you yeah. put it back in you can never hear it right and sometimes the tones on those parts doesn't even sound good soloed 
Exactly. <laughs> and, and that, and that's the thing, you know, the hit or miss, uh, that's a huge thing that changed was, um, the nothing goal can stay the intro, that riff, this riff we're, we're talking about was a kind of clean, I think we wanted it to sound like, um, I feel like we would have said probably a get up kids or something. I don't know what song, but it's this clean picking. You almost can hear, uh, the, the actual pick hitting the strings, but it's a clean tone of an electric. Too bad it can't stay like that all the time. Nothing gold can stay. The Jerry Finn version immediately went to like a tight distortion, not super heavy, but a like mid kind of distortion. And Neil followed suit. And that's a tone that it's not huge right in the beginning, but it's way bigger when everybody gets in. And then, yeah, the, the Neil stuff was, again, it's no structure, but both Jerry Finn and Neil, uh, we put 808s on there because it was huge at that time. Like right. people started dropping, that was probably corn or whatever doing that. People started dropping 808s everywhere, put 808s in the in the halftime, uh, uh, you know, bridge part. Ne- the, the vocal backups and harmonies are crazy on the Neil version compared to either of these two. Um, he just, he was a master at that kind of stuff and figuring that stuff out. And again, this is before Pro Tools. So you got 24 tracks on a tape. You got to figure out how to do this and make it all work. And most of these things with rock music, they're doubled or, you know, it's a, a harmony is two tracks because it's on the left and right side of the speakers. So there's a lot of pre-planning that goes into trying to figure out how to maximize the, the 24 tracks that you have at hand. What's up, everybody? I am Finn McKenty, host of the Punk Rock NBA podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. My podcast is all about doing what you love for a living, and every week I sit down and talk to people who have done exactly that. For example, musicians like Tommy from Between the Buried Me, Matt from Periphery, Lil Lotus and Shinigami, among many others, photographers, artists, designers, YouTubers like Glenn Fricker and Sarah Dietschy, and I unpack exactly how they got to where they are today with the goal of helping you do the same. So if that sounds cool, you can listen and subscribe at soundtalentmedia.com and I'll see you there. Absolutely. Well, so now, you know, I, I like to ask this question and I kind of think I'm, I know the answer because time was just going by so fast for you guys. You recorded this song. You know, I like to ask the question of, did you know that this song when you wrote it was going to resonate with your fan base and, and just be this, this thing 20 years later. And I guess at the time it was just happening so quickly. You recorded this, you you know, you put on nothing gold can stay, you're playing shows. And like, it sounds to me like this was just a fan favorite from the very beginning. Is that correct? Yeah, it was. Well, yes, it was a big song. However, we're very fortunate that a lot of our songs had steam. And so remember, you know, this had been recorded multiple times. By the time the Neil version came out, it was almost like you're, we were almost over the song, you know, in a sense. Yeah. And, uh, I yeah. remember when we're recording with Neil, it's like you're doing a lot of decisions and going like, well, does this still sound like the original? Like, is it okay to do this? Because is it going to change too much? And so that's an interesting way to look at it. Most people don't look at that when they're recording. You just want it to sound good. But for us, it was a comparison, like making sure we didn't do the Jerry Finn stuff. We wanted to make sure it was sounding good enough or better or whatnot. Was there um, ever the, was there ever the thought of by that point? Because we went through this before. We re- recorded Johnny Quest twice and Jen mm-hmm. twice and a couple other songs. Was there ever the thought of, OK, you know what? We, we kind of have a fan base right now. Like we got pockets of people. We can go up the road and play to two to three hundred people pretty much everywhere we go. And here we are recording this song for the third time. Is our fan base going to go, what? These guys don't have 
any other songs? Was there ever that uh, uh, thought in your heads or you just, again, time was just going by so fast you didn't care? No, I mean, I think there was that thought and it might have gone a little deeper with that because one thing about our band in general, and this gets away from hit or miss, but um, I think our band, we, we were very proud of this integrity that we have. And, you know, we learned it from bands like you guys, honestly, um, you guys and like MXPX and stuff like that, the, the guys who came up really touring and not just being a radio band. But here we are thrown in the situation where now we have a major label behind us. We kind of had these resources we never had before. We were very concerned with does anything that we're doing at that time, is it going to make us look like we're just straight selling out? Like, are we doing it just to get on MTV? Because that's not why we're doing this. So those were the things we were thinking about. Like, And Neil even, it's crazy, but you talk to Neil about the recording of that record and he remembers he had his own little internal filter because he is, uh, in a sense, almost like a musical genius. Like he's amazing at what he does and he's really good at, at arranging, at producing, at like having these ideas on how to layer and stuff like that. But there were so many things that, and we caught him once or twice, where he would have an idea and tell us, and we'd be like, ooh, the ears are perk up. And he's like, no, nah, we can't do that. And then we're like, no, you, you can't do that to us. You know, you can't tell us something great and be like, no, it's not, you know, let's not do it. <laughs> but the reason why he was doing it was he was afraid it was make, gonna make us not sound like us, right? So that's, I think, the most important or the most concerning thing at that time was, are we, are we still newfound glory? You know, is it okay to have Jordan sound like this? Is it okay to have a couple of his voices on top of each other or have a little guitar noodle in the background. And luckily for us, yeah, it was totally fine because what we were doing was we were taking an unrefined sound, but a very unique sound at the time and just really refining it so it could be accessible to, you know, tons of people if you want to, if you want to yeah. say it like that. Yeah, well, and, and, and I will say too, um, so around 2000, we went out, Less Than Jake, uh, headlined a tour uh, and it was uh, a co- a uh, special guest, which was uh, Anti-Flag and Newfound Glory. And then the Teen Idols opened the show. Yep. And uh, man, the lines were wrapped around the block for this thing. We probably could have sold out two nights in every place. And I saw I saw firsthand the machine uh, drive through MCA. They, they did an incredible job. They you mm-hmm. got hat, hats off to them. I mean, this is truly before social media. This was grassroots uh, and, and you guys worked your worked your asses off, you know, and uh, it was really cool to see. And it went and we were, as you know, we were always proud of you guys. Um, and uh, you were the only band, uh, I, one of the only bands I, I'm going to say I'm going to go on the limb and say the only band that uh, we took out as a baby band that, you know, actually, uh, uh, you know, sales wise and attendance wise at concerts ended up you know, eclipsing less than Jake that took us back out on tour on the uh, 2003 Honda Civic tour. Yep. You guys championed for us to be on that with you, you guys in good Charlotte. And you guys were the reason we got on that. And um, we'll never forget that. That's why we love you guys. You know, we we've always, always been proud of you. Um, so, you know, going, I kind of touched on this a minute ago and I, I want to know, um, at the time, did you know that the song was special or out of all the other songs that you had, was it, was this just another song? And I, I'm talking before you ever went out and played it live. Like you're, 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 you have a bunch of songs going. Did you know the hit or miss was special, that it was career defining and, and that it would have the impact, you know, it's had that with resonating with your fans all these years, any, yeah, inkling, well, any inkling or was it just another song? Well, first off, let me say, I'm sorry I didn't answer that because yes, you did ask that about five minutes ago. I didn't even touch on it. Um, I, you know, I don't think we did because at the time that we first wrote it and kind of put it, put it into our arsenal of songs, if you want to call it, um, 
we we hadn't even released nothing golden state the only thing we had out was a five song ep and um you know it was just one of the songs that we had yeah it was the first song on that record but i still feel like at that time some of the other songs on nothing gold can stay we thought were just as strong if not stronger there's a song called passing time that a lot of people still like there's a song called third and long i mean some of these songs are, are huge and we're we're also emo kids right so we grew up in that and that mid to late 90s kind of emo era there's a song called twos and threes that's a slower song on that record that a lot of people love so no it was just one of the songs of course you have to understand that it's going to be some kind of special song as this the time goes on and as record labels start saying this is the hit record or whatever they're saying you know like (laughs) yeah of course that's the song right if you're going to put it on another record and have us re-record it it's got to be better than other songs but if you want to go all the way back to when i first wrote that riff no way. I mean, it was just a riff. I was just excited to have a riff. And like I said, if the, you ever listen to this first recording of me just playing, you know, guitar, it's literally the riff um, probably 150 times in a row. That's it. <laughs> yeah. yeah but, I, it was special but, to me, but I'm not like, that's going to get me on TV like Green Day or something. No, yeah. you're not thinking that. But it's amazing, though, that that riff you played 150 times in a row for two and a half minutes on a cassette ended up in Chad's hands and it turned into this thing that 20 years later, not only are you are you fielding questions on a podcast, but you play this song every night. It's a yeah. defining song of, of, of your career that you didn't give much more thought to it than it was just it was just a riff. And that's just so, so cool. You know, here here's some kid in his bedroom. You know, uh, I'm assuming you recorded on a cassette, right? Yeah, totally. <laughs> totally recorded on a cassette. Yeah. And, uh, and, and here you are now. Um, I get asked this a lot and I, and, and I want to get your take on it. So, you know, you said to this day, you play it every night and if you don't play it, it's either, it's either the stage collapsed, uh, the, the fire marshal came in and shut the show down or, or some extraneous circumstance, but you, you I know, think you, all of those have actually happened. So it's yeah. funny. You say. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Yeah. Hey, I even broke my arm and we still played the song with a different drummer as I'm behind the stage with a broken arm. I remember that. Where was was I on that tour? No, that was the Rose. It was a Roseland Ballroom. I think it was right after our tour with you, or it was in between because you guys you took us out before the Anti Flag tour. But I do remember this. I saw pictures of it or something. Where yeah. Um. So you go up every night. Twenty years later, here's a song you wrote in your bedroom when you were a kid, and you're playing it. And do do you ever go? Got to play hit or miss again, or is it just you? Do you do you feel that energy that I feel when I play Johnny Quest? And, the, and as long as the crowd's going nuts, it, it feels like the latest performance that you're playing of that song is uh, is just as special as it ever was. Yeah, totally. I mean, there's all different ways to answer that, but I mean, here's one great thing about the song: there, it's just a guitar intro, and obviously, this isn't what you think about when you're writing it. But because it's just a guitar intro, when that gets played and Chad usually has some kind of like talking intro. He'll either talk about the song or, uh, you know, talk about something at the show. He starts playing that and the crowd reacts. And it's really cool to hear that happen because you have this like few seconds before we all come in and everything's turned up to 11 where you can kind of hear the crowd and we feed off of that as musicians up on stage. So that's one thing that's amazing about it every single night, no matter where we are. Uh, the second thing, and this is a Ian Grushka answer, but it's true. Most of the time when we play that song, we are near the end of our set. 
So you can't help but be happy because your set is almost over <laughs> and you've, you've gotten such a, through another show. Such a, it's such an Ian answer. I'm almost it done is. with the set now. I just want to be it over with. Yeah. Exactly. He would say, oh, yeah, when I hear that riff, it means I can eat within five minutes or something. Right. <laughs> or go bitch about something. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. All right. Um, yeah. But, you know, it's, uh, it, it is amazing. Every now and then I definitely catch myself and it's pretty awesome to you hear that riff and again you know luckily i'm not playing drums right at the start or even counting it in or the things like that so it just happens and you, you catch yourself like yeah this is this is the riff this is the riff uh that kind of started everything and continues to go with everything for instance i remember being on the our local radio station down here and not just like the the college station like the big rock station and they had one of those top five at nine or whatever countdowns we were on it for a couple days straight and we were in like the four and five range and it's awesome to hear. And there was one night that we knew we were going to be on it because somebody tipped us off and I'm listening to the songs. Number five plays some random band, four, three, number two played and it was a different song. And I'm like, are you kidding me? We're, we're going to be the number one on this countdown. And I was driving and I geared myself up and I probably was breaking the law with how fast I was going, <laughs> but I did that thing. You know, I, I'm not, sh I'm not ashamed to admit it. I, rolled the windows down. I turned up the radio as loud as I could. And that guitar intro allows a DJ to talk over it as well. And so they were talking a little bit and it played. And I was just like, this is insane. We are now, you know, at that time, that's like, this is the biggest thing ever. I'm yeah, on right. the radio and I'm yeah. looking around like to see if anybody's driving. There's nobody near me. I don't know what road <laughs> I was on, but it's like, I'm celebrating by myself. Yeah. It was pretty awesome. That That's amazing. Was that, uh, was that the buzz? Uh, no, it's actually ninety four nine Zeta. Rest oh, in peace. I, I remember Zeta, like a Spanish Zeta. station. Yeah, yeah. Um, that that's a great story, and that's such a uh, a humbling thing to you know. It's like you were, you were that kid. You were that kid that always wished that that happened, and it happened to you, man. Yeah. Well, like, here you, you you know this, but a lot of people don't. My father was a, a very respected and famous heart surgeon in South Florida. He yes. did the first heart transplant down in uh, at University of Miami, and. That, that was what I was groomed to be or something like that. My older brother is now a cardiologist, so I always say he took the fall for the family. But still, <laughs> for, me to, for me to come in one day, and I was attending University of Miami uh, while I was in Newfound Glory. So at the time, I wrote and recorded uh, Hit or Miss. I was probably just getting into college. So I'm a college student, and I come in one day to my parents and go, hey, I'm going to drop out of school. And I'm going to go uh, with a band or with a record label called Drive Through Records uh, and drive to California. And, you know, it's like, yeah. that doesn't work in my house, yeah. but I convinced my parents to let me do it. So yeah, it was a uh, very re uh, relieving. That's probably not even the word. It was just like liberating. Just, yeah. Invigorating in a sense. Right. Yeah. I, I can't believe that this is happening and maybe this is the start of something and who knows how long it's going to last. But the deal I made with my parents was let's let this opportunity happen. It's a window that if I let it go by, I will probably never forgive myself for. And we'll find a way. I'll, I, I think I told them, I literally said, give me like three years or something. I had some scholarships that I could actually go back on if I needed to, but they expired at a certain point in time. And I said, you know, the scholarship, let's say it expires in uh, 2002 or something. Um, I'll go until 2001 and we'll re-evaluate re in 2001 and see where I am. And if it's not good, I'll just go back to school. Well, 2001, by then we were already on tour uh, opening up for well, we open with you guys and then go out on a tour of Blink playing in front oh, yeah. of 25,000 people a night. So 
it was on by then. Yeah you, you, yeah, you come to think of it now, you're the only guy I've ever known that's traded in a scalpel for a pair of drumsticks. There you go. It's amazing, I should, man. I should go back right now and be an essential <laughs> worker. And it's funny, I, all these years, a little, I don't even know why, because probably because I found out your dad was a doctor. I've always called you Dr. Baluki, especially yeah, when I had true. 10. There is another Dr. Baluki right yeah, now. So especially, when I, especially when I had 10 beers in me, Dr. Baluki. Yep. Um, well, okay, we're going to wrap up here in a second. Um, I, I, I want to thank you so much for doing this. Uh, I, I wish you and the band all the time, nothing but the best. And uh, I, uh, I I love your new songs as much as your old stuff. I think that you're a band uh, that continues to put, push the envelope of who you guys are, um, continues to to uh, strive to write better songs, become better players. Uh, I've seen it. Uh, there was a time between probably 04 Warp Tour and God, it, it might have been five or six years. I didn't see you guys live. Our paths just didn't cross. And we were in Australia for Soundwave, and I stood the side of the stage, and I, my jaw was on the ground. I mean, you just became this, you were always good, but you just became this monster drummer, and the whole band just on fire. I was like, these guys are better than, than they ever were. And uh, that's just testament to who you guys are. I'm proud of you guys. Uh, is, is there a last thing you'd like to let our listeners know uh, that's going on with you, either personally or, or with the band? Uh, sure. Well, let me just really quickly say, uh, I can kind of reiterate all the sentiments that you just gave me towards you guys, because we will always say, uh, less than Jake, you know, a few other bands, but you guys are, are always in that conversation. One of the few bands that, uh, took us out as a baby band, like you said, you know, you really gave us a chance. And if it wasn't for you guys, we would definitely not be where we are. We learned a lot from you guys and your band continues to be an example to us and for us in the sense that you're still going, um, you know, and your guys' shows are awesome. You know how to put on a show. You guys know how to enjoy yourselves, yet take this seriously. It is a business for you guys in the sense that you can continue to do it when a lot of other bands can't. So there's a lot of examples there. And obviously, uh, you know, tip the cap to you guys for, for being an example, whether you knew you were or not. And we always, always love to either see you guys, be able to tour with you guys, play shows, whatever it is. I'm always looking forward to the next time that I can hang out with you and the rest of the band. And so well, th- thank you, man. I, that means of a course. lot. Appreciate of it. Course. Um, yeah. That being said, I guess, you know, luckily we got families. We've been doing this, the band for long enough that we've all found a way collectively as a band to, you know, let our personal lives exist and still have our job and we support each other. And we've been doing that for over 20 years. Um, you know, so so all is good. I can't wait to get back out there and play all these songs, especially a song like Hit or Miss. No matter how much I used to say, I would, I never want to hear it again. We played it thousands of times. You know, <laughs> right now, honestly, I would take that and play it a thousand times in a row if I had to, to get back out there. <laughs> and I, I uh, completely uh, agree with that sentiment. Uh, Cyrus, thank you so much. Uh, again, best to you and the band. And I hope to talk to you sooner than later. All right. Thanks, Chris. I do appreciate it. And thanks for having me on the show. Yes, rock everyone. I'm Hal Schwartz. And I'm Flynn McClain. Together we host None But the Brave, a podcast dedicated to the music and career of Bruce Springsteen. Bruce and E Street Band are on tour right now for the first time in six years, and we're taking a detailed look at what's happening on stage in our bi-weekly episodes. We've also been recently joined by some very exciting guests, including rock journalist Warren Zanes and Stephen Hyden, Backstreet's Magazine founder Charles Cross, and Barstool's Kirk Menahan. If you're a diehard Springsteen fan, this is the show for you. So please subscribe to Nimbut the Brave on your favorite podcasting platform, and we hope to see you further on up the road. Thank you so much!
We'll be seeing you. As we near the end of the show, here's a band you might not know. Welcome to this week's Band You Might Not Know, where each week I will preview a select band of my choice that you may or may not know. If you'd like your band to be previewed on Krista Makes a Podcast, all you have to do is submit your song and bio to bandyoumightnotknow at gmail.com. Again, that's bandyoumightnotknow, all one word, at gmail.com. And all I ask for is a good quality recording of a song you feel best represents your band. Uh, This week's featured band uh, is Cardboard Box Colony from Asheville, North Carolina. Uh, These guys blend modern and progressive elements with high-energy skate punk influenced songs. Uh, they formed the band in 2019, and uh, they're set to release their debut EP uh, this fall. On vocals, uh, we got Logan Zachary. On bass and vocals, Jason Clark. On guitar, Austin Burgess. On guitar, TJ Burns. And on drums, Mike Riddle. You can listen to their music on Bandcamp and Spotify, and you can find them online at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Cardboard Box Colony. Here's a snippet of their song, Headstone. The Rap with Chris and Chris. All right, man. Well, as usual, another great episode, and it's very cool. That was our first episode with a drummer. Yes, uh, they, they don't they don't get enough credit those drummers. Definitely not. And <laughs> and speaking of credit, they definitely do not get enough credit as songwriters. And I know you and I both from experience uh, being in bands with uh, drummers who are also songwriters. But that being said, I feel like drummers are always part of the songwriting process, a very important part of the songwriting process, as I'm sure you'd agree. Yeah, for sure. You know, and, and, um, you know, in Cyrus's case, uh, you know, he can actually pick up a guitar and, and get around on that. And so it's so important being a drummer that can actually visualize the chord changes and know where like certain accents are going to be on the drums. That is just such, such an amazing uh, tool to have in a band. It's, it's, it's great. You know, and he, uh, he contributes uh, with lyrics and and melodies and uh, you know, kind of an all all around uh, songwriter. And it just makes uh, it makes it so much easier uh, for the rhythm section, the guitar players and the singers in the band to, uh, to be able to communicate with him. Right. Yeah. And you know, you and I both have experience with that. I will correct you real quick. Cyrus said he does not write lyrics, <laughs> but he does. He did write the main riff for the most popular Newfound Glory song. So if that isn't a uh, a tip of the cap to uh, drummer songwriters out there, I don't know what else is. Uh, you and I both obviously have experience with songwriting drummers in Punchline. Corey, uh, not only as a tasteful, badass drummer, but also as a dude who writes entire songs and sends demos to the band. Uh, You know, that is always an awesome thing. It's awesome when the whole band can contribute in that way, in like that, you know, contributing an entire song to the band. That's awesome. I know with Vinny for all those years in Less Than Jake, uh, as a primary lyric writer, uh, which is such an important thing in music, uh, that that's that's very cool to have that experience but even if you don't have those things even if it's a drummer who is just purely there to drum 
that's still such an important part of the process. Uh, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. I mean, just, you know, just a drummer that that you know, I say just drums. I mean, drumming is the <laughs> it's the it's the concrete foundation to everything. If the drums aren't there and they're not solid, then the rest of it's not going to be together. But uh, you know, having all those other things, uh, you know, added to it definitely uh, is the icing on the cake. If they can if they can write and they can uh, contribute to the songwriting process, it's just all that much better. I would argue and maybe that's just me as a bassist coming from that world of rhythm you know when i'm in my car it's the bass it's the bass all the way up so i'm feeling that kick uh and i don't know if it's just me but i would argue that the most important thing in the song is the top line melody and lyric but i would argue that the second most important thing in a song is the beat and you know once again i don't know if that's me coming from as a dude who's part of the rhythm section and also loves, uh, you know, R&B and hip hop music and loves to feel that bass. But I, I don't know. How, what's your opinion on that? I mean, the, the beat is everything. And uh, I've, you know, read, uh, you know, my rock and roll autobiographies and biographies of the producers, uh, talk to producers firsthand, um, seen the behind the musics and all this stuff for producers will we'll talk about like, you know, they have a fantastic drummer. Uh, already in the band. Uh, case in point was uh, when, when Rick Rubin did the last Black Sabbath record. Um, they had the guy from Ozzy's band, uh, Tommy. Um, uh, went, he went out on tour with them. But for the record, they had Brad Wilk from Rage Against the Machine come in and do the record. Not that Tommy's not a great drummer. It was a feel thing. Right. And sometimes you'll play certain beats, one guy, and and you're and it's just not happening. And uh, you'll get another drummer to come in, or or tell the drummer that drum beat's not working. You, you got to come up with something better. Uh, in, in which case, sometimes they will, and uh, it, it takes the song from being mediocre and not working and not hitting you a certain way uh, to to making the song uh, in some instances a hit. Right. Hey, I nothing. Uh, I can't say enough either about tasteful drummers, drummers that know when it's their time to shine and when it is their time to, to sit back and, and, and just hold down the beat and let the song do its thing. You got to be, as, as you said, uh, tasteful about it, overplaying uh, it, just for the sake of overplaying because you can and it doesn't suit the song. It's a waste of time. Right. Um, you know, and knowing when not to play, <laughs> that's an art in and of itself, you know, yeah. knowing when, when not to play something is, is almost as great as knowing when to play something. One thing that you'll see, and I know that everybody's guilty of it. I'm sure that lesson Jake was guilty of it. And I'm sure that punchline was guilty of it. And every band is when you're starting out and say you have a great drummer in your band. Uh, it, it the drummer does tend to overplay because, they're a great drummer and they want to show off. And I think a lot of times when you're starting out as a band, you think that the more you do on every instrument, the more you're shredding on guitar and the more you're uh, ripping bass lines and the more the drummer's going off, you think that that's going to make the song better. Like you have something to prove. Uh, and as you become a more seasoned songwriter and, and a more experienced band, you learn that that's not necessarily the case, that it's actually the opposite. Yeah, for I mean, I can relate to that for sure. You know, I just thought that, uh, you know, I mean, especially early on in our career, uh, everything had to be 150 miles an hour or it wasn't good. And then right. you realize, OK, now you're trying to slow things down just to get into a groove. And that's when it gets difficult to play. You know, you can you can right. laugh at, at a band like ACDC and say, oh, their drummer is really simple. You sit back there and try to play a drum beat that slow for three minutes and in that kind of a pocket. It's difficult. Right. <laughs> I mean, and you know. 
going back to something Cyrus talked about in his episode, which I don't think we've touched about touched on yet in this podcast was playing to a click when you record. And I remember back when we were first recording albums and before we even knew that you played to a click in the studio. And then it was like, Oh my God, you got to play to a metronome and realizing that your band sounds so much tighter when you do that. Uh, It's just, it's, it's like night and day when you play to a click and okay, you and I, may have a difference of opinion on on the click when it comes to live music. Punchline plays to a click when we play live now. We didn't always. Now we do. And I feel like that keeps us, that keeps when you get that adrenaline when you get on stage uh, and you just want to fly through the songs, keeps you back in that pocket, you know, and it keeps, sometimes it feels you have that adrenaline going and it feels like you're playing so slow. But then when you watch a video back after the show, you're like, oh, we sound great because we're not flying through the song. But then again, some people argue, I think Dave Grohl's one of those people that argues like, yeah, you want that ebb and flow. Uh, so there's two schools of thought on that, man. Uh, and I don't believe less than Jake plays to a click live. Right? No. And, you know, I, I don't I don't uh, agree one way or the other. I think it has to suit and fit the band. It just that that wouldn't right. that wouldn't work for, for our particular band. But that doesn't mean it's wrong. I have no absolutely no issues with bands uh, doing it. Uh, at all. But uh, for those listeners that don't know, um, and uh, a metronome, a click track is basically a clock (laughs) that doesn't differentiate from time. It's like tick, 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 tick. And it's keeping time uh, while you play. And uh, one of our first producers we ever worked with, uh, Mike Rosen, uh, we had the click on and he said, I I don't know who it was. Maybe it was me. He said something like, you know, it's off or something. He looked at me, he goes, the click doesn't lie. (laughs) (laughs) Right. You're off (laughs) human error. (laughs) Yeah. And it, and it can, you can, even in recording, you could do what's called a click map. And sometimes, uh, a chorus can go up a BPM or two, which the listener might not hear. I actually just learned about this this week from uh, Punchline's drummer, Corey. I didn't know this, but in a lot of very popular songs, they will boost that click uh, even half a BPM just so you would never know. But it's it's a technique used a lot in a lot of pop songs and things like that. I didn't know that. Did you know that? Yeah, I, I, I did. As a matter of fact, it just gives that little bit of energy. You don't know why uh, that part lifts, but it just gives it that little bit extra. And then it'll come back to the verse. It'll dip back down just a little bit. And, right. it, and, it, and it does something to uh, uh, create and change mood within a song. It's a, a very effective uh, uh, tool. Very subtle, very subtle. Yep. Uh, but but apparently uh, very useful too. And um, uh, so, something else Cyrus mentioned that uh, you know I don't know if we talked about the importance of of a defining uh, a riff. Uh, and 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 matter of fact, we recently had Ryan from Yellowcard on. That's a very defining riff in Ocean Avenue. That chug uh, guitar yeah. part of the beginning, but hit or miss has that. That riff is just instantly recognizable. Right. And I know that, you know, we can talk about both of our bands too. Less Than Jake has that so much. I I brought up to you earlier, like, you know, when you talk about earlier Less Than Jake, like the second you play that first chord of automatic, it's like, you know, I could, I could still see myself as a teenager, you guys coming out and starting to play that and being like, fuck yeah. Like, you know, it's those, those moments, uh, you know, you brought up Gainesville rock city. It's the, those horns, uh, you know, there's so many of those moments, like every band has those moments and punchline. We have this older song called heart transplant and it has this like 
clean riff that starts it off. And it was like a popular song among our fans. And the second Steve would start playing that, it was like, oh yeah, you know, people got excited. And that's, that's an exciting thing. And we've heard, we heard Ryan talk about that on the yellow card episode. The second you come out there and start playing that. Oh, I think Tim, Tim from Rise Against talked about that too, yeah. that he could come out and start playing that beginning and people just went crazy for it. And, and sometimes the riff is as definable and as, as big as the chorus or the or the lyrical hook in the song, you know, something like Smells Like Teen Spirit or, you know, the the intro of Lit, My Own Worst Enemy, and that, you know, when right. that thing comes on, it's like you you just, you know immediately w- w- what it is. Yeah, exactly. And that's something that, you know, when you're talking to uh, maybe a band that's starting out or, uh, um, you know, uh, a band in, in their, their earlier years, that's something that's important that, that, you know, you might not think about is having that super clean, defined start to a song that will just instantly be recognizable. And that's maybe not something you're thinking about in songwriting when you're first starting out, but it's something that, uh, you know, if you have that within the song that, Maybe someone with an outside perspective could be like, yo, maybe you should start the song with that. And uh, you establish that that riff off the bat. And uh, and it's just a recurring theme within the song, uh, which, you know, might be something that an experienced songwriter such as yourself might recommend to a younger band or artist. What a segue, man. I, you know, I, I got I, I, I you never fail me, Chris. You never <laughs> fail me. You never fail me. Uh, yeah, I uh, I would love uh, to produce a song, collaborate uh, on a song with you. I've been doing a lot of one on one video consultations with songwriters and bands lately. Uh, we, we, we get across from each other on the computer screen and uh, we go through your song top to bottom lyrics, melodies, chords. And uh, I, I like to believe that uh, I can I can make your song even better than uh, what it is when you present it to me. So if you'd like more information on that, uh, write me at Christamakes at gmail.com. I'm still doing custom songs. Uh, keep those coming. Uh, th- those are going great. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, Chris and I are also offering uh, he does the drawing. I don't do that. You don't want to see me draw. We're also <laughs> offering animation uh, with custom songs. Or if you'd like uh, some animation, a video uh, for your band, uh, a jingle with animation for your business again uh, you can write us at kristamakes at gmail.com for more information with that and uh yeah please uh follow us on facebook at the krista makes a podcast facebook group uh we we love uh all your uh suggestions and uh all your participation it's been fantastic it's free to join and uh, it's a lot of fun and uh you can follow me on instagram at less than christy at uh, on twitter at uh, less than chris and uh yeah i think that's about it chris Yeah, that's about it. The last thing I would say is if you enjoy this podcast, which we offer to you free of charge, uh, all we ask is you spend 10 or 20 seconds leaving us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts because, you know, it makes us feel good. I know sometimes, Chris, I'll say, hey, Chris, go look at the newest review on iTunes. And then you'll be like, oh, man, that's text me back and be like, oh, man, that's awesome. (laughs) So, you know, it's nice to have that encouragement that we are making something that you all like. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, leave a uh, leave a review how good Chris's segues are. Let us know. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. All right, everybody. Until next week, we'll see you then. Hey, this is Scott from Fly on the Call. Each week I speak to a different musician, whether they're in an established band like Silverstein or the Wonder Years, or band on the rise like Spanish Love Songs, Origami Angel, or Meet Me at the Altar. We discuss music and lyrics, the successes and challenges of being in a band, and more as we get to the core of each artist. 
The show features musicians of diverse genres and backgrounds, so there's always a chance I'll be talking to your new favorite band. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com. The number you have reached is 100.7 WMMS. It wasn't just a radio station, it was a lifestyle. Cleveland is, is a rock and roll city for sure. I feel like shadows. Yeah! Down! The Wrath of the Buzzer. WMMS. Cleveland. The rise and fall of one of the most iconic radio stations in America. Profiles. The Wrath of the Buzzard. P-R-O-H Files. Subscribe now wherever you get podcasts.